0: Good morning, everyone. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study your word. And we ask that you would send your spirit to enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and bring us closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number seven in our quarterly, The Prophetic Gift. And the lesson title this week is The Work of the prophets. And I just thought we'd start by opening up and, and answering the question. From your understanding, what was or what is the work of prophets? What, what are they supposed to do? What is their mission?
1: Make Jesus
0: known. Okay, make Jesus known. Make God known. Okay, tell the truth about God. Other, other missions? Correct the saints. Correct the saints. Reproof. Uh, chastising for sin. We, yeah, we got that one. Um, Others. No, by the way, you guys are getting them in order. It was the first two I had. So, <laughs> Others. Well,
2: to guide the saints.
0: That's the third one, guidance. <laughs> I mean, you, got, yeah, you got my notes? That's pretty good. <laughs> got guidance. Others? Predict the future. Predict the future. Prophetic predictions. Direct communication from God. Be the voice of God. So if God has a direct message he wants to give. Exposing error in, in our teachings? Maybe. Uh, calling to repentance? Social order, healthful living, principles like that? How about settled disputes? How about check on political power? You know, we, our, our government, we have the balance checks and balances. We're the pro- prophets, the checks and balances on political power. Yeah. So, so there are a lot of missions, a lot of purposes for a prophet. Sunday's lesson... Read the first question, somebody, right there in Sunday's lesson. It starts at the very top. Where do we find the Gospel of Salvation in the Old Testament? The Gospel of Salvation in the Old Testament. And then somebody read the first paragraph, which kind of gives some examples from the lesson authors. But first paragraph.
3: The plan of salvation was explained to Adam and Eve as soon as they had sinned. It graphically was illustrated in Abraham's test on Mount Moriah and the sanctuary service instituted by Moses. Sanctuary rituals were designed for an agricultural people who lived closely with their animals. The sacrifice animals symbolized Christ's death on the cross, and the priest's services illustrated his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary.
0: See, and, and, and this paragraph is in these examples are designed to answer their question. And the question was, where do we find the gospel of salvation in the Old Testament? And so to you, what are your thoughts about these examples... And what gospel message do you hear when you think of these examples? Abraham sacrificing of a son.
2: Well, I think the most important one was Adam. As soon as they had sinned, God already had a plan for their redemption. And that was truly a gospel.
0: And do you notice that the plan in Eden... Think, think this through. The plan in Eden has the seed coming, which will be bruised, but through his bruising, he will crush... The head of the serpent. Now, notice, we have the two opposing men. The, the, the sea is being bruised, but he is victorious over the enemy. He's crushing the serpent. Now, in the Abraham story, is it so clear that the serpent's being crushed there?
3: If you think about it.
0: But, but is it... it, it okay, tell me, where you, tell me where you see it.
3: Well, Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. He had to be willing to sacrifice his son.
0: I understand. Where do you see the serpent coming in there, to being crushed?
3: Because Abraham trusted in God. He trusted what God was saying. He, he didn't disbelieve God.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I, I love it. But I, I'm wondering if the lesson clearly makes the distinction there's an enemy that's being crushed in the gospel. The lesson of the Bible in the Abraham story. And how about the sanctuary service? Is the sanctuary service, the daily rituals, the, the, the animal being sacrificed, is it, is it really obvious that there's always Christ's sacrifices crushing the serpent? Is that obvious what you think of when you see the sacrificial system?
2: No, you really only see the...
0: How do we typically think of it? Yes. The serpent really, in a sense,
1: is us. It's our selfishness. Is really what the serpent idea is really
0: all about. Okay, if you let me massage that just a little bit, that the serpent is the evil seed that got planted in our hearts when Adam and Eve sinned that God wants to free us from. Right. Not necessarily us ourselves. We're, we're, to, we're to be transformed, changed, regenerated, recreated. But whatever whatever Satan stands for that lives in us needs to be crushed. Can, can I say it that way? Yes. Okay, so do you see that obvious in the sanctuary service? When you have listened to it, when you've studied it, you you think about the sacrificial animal, does it come clear, hey, this this lamb representing Christ is coming to crush our enemy? He's coming to crush wickedness in our heart. He's coming to to transform us. Or do you see it more along the lines that he's coming to pay a price? He's coming to to purchase some legal right to heaven. He's coming to, to pay off the wrath and anger of his father. I mean, how do you see it? How see it no, how do we see it? How do we see it when we hear these lessons? But, but part of
2: that is just because that's always the way it was shaped when I studied it. I don't know what I would think is
0: if I had not... For those who are good hear, she said that's the way she sees it because that's the way we were shaped. She's always taught that way. She's not sure how she would see it if she came uh, completely... Uh, unprejudiced or unbiased to, to hear these stories, whether she'd see it differently?
3: I think Abraham felt victorious because he didn't have to offer his son. Because all the while he was going to offer his son. Going to offer his son, And right at the end, he didn't have to do it. That's high five times.
0: And so the lesson would be somebody else is going to die in my son's place. Uh, well... Isn't that the lesson? Could God he, will provide a lamb. God will provide a lamb. There's a substitute coming. And a substitute, and there's no question, Christ is our substitute, so there's no question. The question is, substitute for what? That's the question, substitute for what? And the good news traditionally is, he substituted for tra- traditional, he substituted for me in the legal penalty of death for the transgression of the law. thoughts about that is that good news maybe we should step back and just ask the question what is the gospel because we're looking to answer the question where do we see the gospel in these Old Testament stories so what is the gospel let's define it
2: it's Christ in me
0: Christ in me the hope of glory yes
2: well I was just going to say that Jesus died because of the results of the sins of the people that killed him and not because um, he was forced to die
0: Okay, yeah. He said, "No one can take my life; I will give it freely." Mm-hmm. Or could be. And didn't. so
2: he was, he was allowing sin to take its full course in order to demonstrate to us that the result of sin is that you die.
0: So the wages of sin is death, and it was demonstrated in Christ, and, and, and the idea being, Christ is God.
1: And the good news is victorious over Satan.
0: If a created being had been on the on the cross, some might have concluded that God killed him. In fact, in Isaiah 53, 4, it says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Look at this. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him. We, the Bible tells us we're going to misunderstand. He took up our infirmities. He took our sick condition. He took our sorrows. He took our, our, our terminal state upon himself. Wages us in his death. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Uh, he He suffered under that condition. But we considered that God smote him, or God struck him, or God killed him. Have you ever heard that taught? God, in order to be just, had to execute his son. But so then he
2: told the thief on the cross, even though you die, your sins aren't going to keep you dead forever, and you are going
0: to go with him. Yes. Because the
3: good news of the gospel is God has been trying to heal us ever since we Amen. fell. Not only his chosen on this earth, but the wicked alive. He's been trying to heal all of us. That's the good news.
0: That is the good news. Yes.
4: I think the good news has to include an aspect that we can trust God, that he is who he said he was, that he is love. that he loves us, that he wants a future of hope and goodness for us, and that we can believe him in that. And that the good news, I think, also has to include that through his remedy, the wages of sin for us isn't death.
0: Excellent. Have you heard in the past said that the good news is that Christ died for us, and if we accept his blood payment in our behalf, we can live forever, we can have eternal life, and live forever with God. Have you heard that as the good news?
3: Yes.
0: Think, think this through. Would it be good news that you could live forever with God, if God is the kind of being Satan says he is? Would that be good news?
1: No.
0: Now, it says in Revelation that there's an eternal gospel. The first angel uh, came with the everlasting or eternal good news. Eternal, does that mean just eternal to the future? Does that mean always was? Always eternal, eternity to the past and eternity to the future, the good news that always was through all time. Yeah. Well, was it always good news in eternity past that Jesus has died for, for our sins? That wasn't the good news. The good news, which is always bad, is that God is love. That God is exactly what you see in, in Jesus. That God doesn't require appeasement. That God didn't need His Son to work on Him in order for him to be gracious and merciful and forgiving. And the Bible's very clear. For God so loved the world, he sent his Son. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up. How will we not also along with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. In other words, guys, God is on your side, but if that's not enough for you, if you're still worried, if you're still insecure, if the lies of Satan have gotten so deep that you're afraid of God, don't worry. Jesus is there, and he's also, along with the Father, interceding for us. It's a powerful transformation because the the root of all paganism is, and there's two two things, either a detached God who doesn't care, or an angry God who has to be appeased. And if you look at paganism, paganism always has these gods where, where the worshippers have to do something to merit or earn. And the heart of Christianity, and we've gone through this before, but Protestantism came from the Roman Church. They were protesting the abuses of the Roman Church. And the core to the, to the abuses of the Roman Church, what was the core? An appeasement. An angry God that needs Mary, Jesus, and all the saints pleading with him, plus indulgences, plus penance, plus everything else you have to do in order to get this God not to be angry and wrathful at you anymore. Now, we've thrown off a lot of that, but the core, still, the wine, the wine that, that, that all the world is drinking, is this idea that Jesus died in order to appease his Father, so his Father won't be angry, and he pleads his blood, my, my blood, my blood. Now, if you take the scripture, Jesus said to the to the disciples, "It's expedient for you that I leave, because if I don't, the Spirit won't come. But when I when I leave, the Spirit's going to come." Now, look at this. He's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Who do you think the Spirit's listening to to take a message to the world? Who do you think he's listening to?
3: The of the God.
0: Jesus. He is Jesus' representative. He, Jesus can't be so. Jesus sends the Spirit to be his representative, ambassador, envoy on earth, and the Holy Spirit's only going to speak what he hears. And so when Je- you read these references about Jesus in heaven pleading his blood, who do you think? which direction do you think he's pointing? Do you think the Father needs to be convinced to be loving? Do you think the Father who loved us so much he sent us son needs Jesus to plead to him in order to, to be persuaded to be loving? Or do you think it's hard-hearted humanity who needs to be pled with in order to be won back? And so when you see Jesus in heaven pleading, I see Jesus in heaven pleading, but, but we have him facing the wrong way. He's facing us. He's pleading for us. And the Spirit is taking his pleadings and communicating his pleadings. My blood, my blood, my life, my heart. Don't you know how much I love you? Won't you come home? Yes, somebody over here.
4: It's easy for me to comprehend a judge, a murder case, and say the murderer is his own daughter. And he was a kind, loving judge. He was a whole Christian. It's easy for me to comprehend that even though I'm the murderer, that I know I'm going to get a fair case. It's easy for me to relate to that here on this earth. And just the few years that I've lived on this earth with my relationship with God, it's easy for me to understand that these kind of accusations about my God being unjust, unfair, having to be...
0: Okay, I'm going to interrupt you right there because I want I want to dissect the metaphor that you put us under. You put us under a metaphor that is traditional, which is the metaphor of the of a imposed law in a judicial system in which a judge has to determine guilt or innocence and then impose just penalties. That is traditional way we view this thing. And I'm going to suggest to you it's wrong. I'm going to suggest to you that God's law is not an imposed law. He didn't create it. The law is the law that emanates from his personhood, the law of love.
4: That for me.
0: Yes, I will. The law of love is a principle in which life is designed to operate. And it's a natural law, just like, oh, let's say the law of respiration. There's a law that we have to respire, we have to breathe or else we die. That's part of the design template for life. God designed it that way. The law of love is the design template, the principle of giving, of beneficence. And we've gone through this before, so indulge me as I do it briefly again. But all life is designed in this other-centered giving. You see the oceans give their waters to the clouds, rain over the lands, forming lakes, rivers, and streams, flowing back to the ocean, and never any circle of giving that brings life. If a body of water separates from that circle, it stagnates, and everything in it dies. Every breath you give, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants. They freely give back to you oxygen. It's a circle of never-ending giving, which is the principle of life. If you decide, I'm going to hold my carbon dioxide, it's mine, I have a right to it, the only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. This is a circle of living. It's a law. And the law of love is the design for life. That law got broken when, well, all married couples in here, imagine that you're a happy, loving, giving, open, trusting relationship. And somebody close to you, one of your own children, one of your own brothers or sisters comes to you and tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair with another. This person brings digitally enhanced photos they've made on their computer showing your spouse in the arms of another. If you believe the lie, even though there's no truth in it, if you believe it, will something inside you change? The circle of love and trust gets broken when lies are believed. Satan is the father of... Lies. Lies Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And as soon as love and trust is broken, think what happens in your heart if you think your spouse is cheating on you. If you believe it. Not just suspect it, but believe it. Fear and selfishness come in. Love and trust broken results in fear. I no longer trust them now. I'm afraid they're going to hurt me. I'm afraid they're going to take advantage. I'm afraid they're going to bring some disease home. And so I can't trust them to have my back. I've got to watch out for myself. And fear and selfishness then results in the acts of disobedience. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. The lies were believed about God. They didn't trust Him. And in trust, they became afraid of Him. And they reached out to take that fruit before the tree was gone, and they lost their chance to get ahead. The taking of the fruit was just the symptom of the sick heart. Jesus said, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart. You say if you commit a murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. It is from the heart that the murder and all these ugly things come forth, Jesus said in Matthew. And he's telling us that the acts of are the symptoms of the sick heart. And so I want to switch the metaphor from one of the, the judicial system to one of the hospital. And imagine that you, anybody heard of a condition called cystic fibrosis? Cystic fibrosis is a, is a genetic disorder that if you're born with it, it's terminal. Right now there's no actual remedy or cure for it that actually fixes the disease. There are treatments that can palliate it But there are no actual cures or remedies. It's genetic. Now, if you were born with this genetic disease, what did you do wrong?
3: Nothing.
0: Will there be symptoms of that disease that will come? Do you understand? Everyone in this room was born in sin, conceived in iniquity. None of us had a choice. We were born terminal, born with an illness that, unless remedied, will kill us. That's our condition at birth. It's not our fault. We're not guilty. We're just sick. And just like that baby, each one of us needs a remedy. Christ came not to appease his father, but to provide the remedy, to fix the condition, to actually cure sinfulness, to back in the garden, the gospel. He will crush the head of the serpent. Not just Satan himself, but the infection that Satan put in our hearts will be crushed. And how did he do it? Well, Christ is a unique being in all creation history. Adam came out of the dust of the ground, God breathed in his nostrils breath of life, a perfect, sinless being, Eve taken from his side, sinless. Did you and I come into the world that way? We came from a sinful mother, sinful father, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Did Jesus Christ, humanity, come into the world either of those two ways? Either from the dust of the ground, father breathes in his nostrils breath of life, he's perfect and sinless, or from sinful parents? No, neither one. He had a sinful mother, Galatians 4 4. Born, uh, uh, born of a woman under law, Galatians 4.4, 4, the law of sin and death. But his father was the Holy Spirit who came upon her. So in Christ we have this incredible union of our sickness with his perfection. And Christ took upon him the sick condition in order to overcome it. And in Jesus Christ you see the two principles warring it out. And what are the two principles? The circle of love. Perfect, other-centered giving with warring with the infection of, we call in the world today, survival of the fittest. Watch out for me, number one. Perfect love, greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. love you so much, I'll do whatever I have to. Including necessary, give my life that you might live. At war with survival of the fittest, do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if necessary, kill you, that I might live. And in our hearts, we are infected with that principle. Our natural state is to watch out for, number one. Christ came to destroy, crush that seed in the human being. And so he took that upon himself. And look, you can see it in his life. In Gethsemane was Christ tempted with powerful feelings. Was he? What did the feelings tempt him to do? If he followed his feelings, what would would his action have been? Save Save himself. He was tempted to save self. But every time the temptation came, he gave self. No one can take my life. I will lay it down freely. On the cross temptation came. You saved others, save yourself. Come down off the cross, we'll believe in you. He was tempted again. Save self. Now this is why he had to go to death. Because Christ had at his disposal, he wasn't like the helpless thieves that couldn't do anything. He had all power at his disposal. John 13, it says all power was given to him. And not only did he get down on his knees and wash the feet, but on the cross he wasn't helpless, he had all power. Now, if at any way along that road, if he would have used his power to stop death's approach, who would he have saved? Self. self. The only way to destroy the infection of me first was to surrender self and love for others.
2: He saved others himself he cannot
0: save. He saved others himself he cannot save. And thus you see in Jesus Christ the, cr- the crushing blow, stomping the serpent's head, Now, interestingly enough, Paul tells us, you see, he won the victory we couldn't do. But because of what Christ did, not only did he reveal the truth about God that wins us to trust, but he developed a perfect character of love in his human walk, with his human decision-making capacities. He didn't exercise his divine powers to stop it. It says in Hebrews 4.15, that he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And in James chapter 1, verse 13, it says that no one should say God tempts, uh, because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. So if he is tempted every way just like we are, and we're tempted from powerful emotions, well, then Jesus was too. And I showed you examples from Gethsemane. But unlike us, he overcame. And now it says in Hebrews 4, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he won this victory, he became the source. And so, Paul says in Romans, it's really cool about crushing the serpent's head, that through us now, through us, Jesus Christ crushes the serpent's head. We crush him, or or tramples him under our feet. How, How does he do that? How do we crush the serpent? Yes.
2: We allow the Holy Spirit to come into our lives so we have that perfect um, nature that Jesus had in us fighting against the devil, which is our sinful
0: nature. And thus we crush by giving self. Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. Or this is how we know what life is. Christ gave his life for us and we ought to give our lives for each other. Let's get some examples of that.
2: But we have to have that power of the Holy Spirit in us in order to That's right. have the power to crush
0: Once person. we trust him, we surrender our life to him and we're willing to give ourselves for others. Do we see love and action still on this earth? Do we see in the Old Testament times the two antagonistic principles, Moses at age 40 murders an overseer watching out for himself and buries him in the sand. But at age 80, Moses says, I'll take my life, take my name out of the book. He offers his, his, his life to protect others. Paul, before his Damascus Road experience, he uses beatings, imprisonments, and stonings. But after Damascus Road, he writes in Corinthians, I'll gladly give my life That my fellow Jews might be saved something has changed this infection to look out and protect number one had been replaced with something and what is the new covenant experience in Hebrews 8 what's Christ going to do write Write what write the law what law is that The the law of love on our hearts and minds no longer will a man say to his brother know the Lord we will all know him so we have a transforming experience unless Revelation 12 describes those who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes with these words these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Something's changed in these people. These last day generations, this group of people ready for translation, have come to the point that they're not afraid to die anymore. They're not watching out for number one. We're, we're willing to give themselves. What is the gospel? That's
4: good news. I got an off-the-wall question. I've been in the Mennonite Hall and, and mm-hmm. listened to the young couples explain their love for each other as they have relationship to preparing the next generation. And they were praying for the character of their age. And the thought has come to me, when a husband has been lusting that day over his secretary or something, and then he comes home, the wife is frustrated, and so there's no real bonding there. Does that transmit to the child?
0: Interesting question, and we discussed actually this last week, and I will tell you that uh, the science is very good on this now. The behaviors we engage in, uh, both the things we worship, the things we believe, the, the, uh, the habits that we engage in, the, the, uh, the foods and things we eat, all this kind of stuff, causes uh, what's called epigenetic changes. Uh, we have our genes, but how those genes are expressed gets changed. Um, on the DNA level, little methyl groups get attached to the histones in the DNA region that codes for the various proteins. And genes get turned on, genes get turned off, and the expression of our genes is altered. That gene expression is passed on to our children three and four generations down. Just as it says in the commandments, into the third and fourth generation, this will be passed down. If we gain victories in our life, live healthier lives, both spiritually, emotionally, relationally, nutritionally, if we, live, we get victories in our life before we have kids, we pass advantages on to our kids. Study done on men with prostate cancer in San Diego, in which um they were put on vegan diets for 12 weeks just 3 months and they uh, prior prior to the diet they took samples of the of the cancer cells and examined the gene expression and then after 12 weeks they took samples again and examined the gene expression and 30 genes had changed expression particularly the genes that induce cancer were turned off the genes that suppress cancer were turned on epigenetic changes epigenetic changes. This happens. And I could go in a lot more examples. We, we talked about some examples last week. And, and if those who would like uh, the notes that are on our website from last week, I have so, a couple of articles, scientific articles attached to the notes that document this that you can, you can get and read those articles. But yes, we pass along to our kids, and the Bible is very clear on this. This is why things are passed down to the third and fourth generation. This is why we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, because Adam and Eve changed themselves, and, and God designed them with the ability to pass on who they are to their kids. There was a study done on, on lab animals in which they were all genetically identical. They uh, they put them into two groups. They got the exact same diets, and then, the, and then these mothers were, were going to have pups that were all genetically identical. Uh, the two groups uh, had the exact same diets, except one group had um, folate and B vitamins added to the diet. The other group did not. Everything else was the same. And the reason they added the folate and B vitamins they're high donors of methyl groups. They donate methyl groups very easily. So more methyl groups available to potentially change gene expression. Now, when all these little pups were born from these uh, lab animals, they're genetically identical, but the ones with the methyl, with the uh, folate in the mother's diet had different color coats. Their fur was a different color. That you understand that's a gene expression change. If your fur is a different color, if your hair is a different color, it's a different it's a gene expression change. Uh that then they let those pups uh, go ahead and have pups several generations down, but no folate was added to the diet. They went back to the original diet as the control group, but the pups three and four generations down were born with the altered colored coats. So that coat color expression change was passed on three to four generations. Um, study of women who had children in Holland during uh, Nazi occupation, during World War II. These children were carried through pregnancy when the mothers only had access to about 500 calories of food per day obviously, is very, very minimal. And then uh, after birth, sometime later, these children were compared to their siblings from the same parents, looking at how the genes were expressed in the kids. And the kids who were gestated during the starvation period had their genes turned on in such a way that they had higher rates of obesity, diabetes, and, medical, and metabolic problems compared to the kids who had a normal diet when mom was carrying them. So um, these types of things, yes, can pass down. So, all right, we to move on back to our lesson. So, um, when we come back to the scripture, talk about the gospel, the good news, the good news that that, that God is going to, to to restore us one day. Um, notice the emphasis in Scripture on the war that we're fighting. Second Corinthians ten three through five. That we live in the world, the w- war we fight is not like the with the weapons of the world. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Life eternal is? Knowing God. Knowing God. In, in Romans chapter 1, uh, when they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, when they didn't think it valuable to retain the truth about God, it says their minds became darkened, their minds became futile, their minds became depraved. Um, we cannot have healthy minds as long as we hold to lies about God. Wendell.
4: The authors of the lesson, obviously, uh, their gospel was presented best in those three texts. It's a fun exercise to come up with your own text
3: that present your gospel.
0: That's what we're about to do. So thank you for bringing that up. But the question is, so as we look for the truth about God, we look for the gospel in the Old Testament, what Old Testament examples can you give us to give us the gospel? You got any, Wendell?
4: Well, um, some of the passages are pretty long, I wrote about ten different passages that I thought um, had the gospel in it opposed to their examples. But anyway.
0: let's go through some. Um, How about as soon as Adam sinned? As soon as he sinned, he ran and hid because he was afraid. Notice fear, part of the infection of sin. Perfect love casts out all fear. Fear is part of that infection of sin. It's not part of God's design. It drives us. It it damages us. But anyway, he's hiding because of fear. Now, notice what God does. God doesn't just pop up behind the bush where he's hiding and say, Hey, what you doing there, Adam? (laughs) No, he calls out to him not to frighten him. Look at God's gentle approach. And then notice the conversation. He said, uh, he said Adam, where are you? I, I hid because I was afraid because I was naked. And, and notice God's question to him. Adam, who told you you are naked? Now, think this through. How many people were around to tell him that? I mean, how, how populated is the earth at this point? What were the options here on this question? So what is the implication of the question? Adam, who told you you're naked? Adam, I'm not pointing at your defect. Adam, you didn't hear me say you're naked. Adam, I'm not the one that's criticizing you. Adam, I'm not the one condemning you. I'm not against you. Adam, why are you running from me? I didn't say anything about it. Do you see? Grace already revealed the gospel. God is not like what Satan says. God says, you better run from the man because he's going to get you. You made a mistake, he's out to get you. You better run. Because if he catches you, he's going to smoke you. <laughs> Soon as Adam sinned, you don't see that. You see grace. How about the woman called in adultery? It's a, uh, I bring this in just to show that Jesus showed the same thing that God showed in Genesis. After she And think this through in our culture today. How would a, a, a young lady feel here in, a, in the postmodern America where we have all this equality and, and acceptance and openness if a young lady was drug out of one of the dorms over here in the middle of, a, of a, an adulterous relationship, uh, half-naked, thrown on the, the square and the, in front of the whole, uh, whole, the whole church community here in America? How do you think that would, would feel? Think it would be a pretty rough experience? How about in the Middle East? Even today's Middle East. Yes. What would she expect? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know they still kill women? Families still have these honor killings. If a woman is caught in adultery, they will kill the woman. Their, their, their own daughters, they will kill them. So, what do you think she was expecting when she was drugged out and thrown there? Oh, it's, it's, it's not just embarrassment. It's way past embarrassment. Okay? And so, after Christ dispatches the crowd, what does he say to her? Where are your accusers? What's implied in the question?
2: He is not an accuser.
0: I'm not your accuser. I'm not against you. I'm not condemning you. You don't hear me pointing out any defects. Hey, I, I know exactly what you did. I mean, you're, it's, it's not like it's a mystery to me. It's not like I'm ignorant here of the facts. But, hey, that's not the point. And just so we don't miss it, he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, what is the point here? See, he doesn't see us in a judicial light. He sees us in a medical model. He's our doctor. And when you see somebody who's suffering from a sickness, she was born in sin, conceived in iniquity. She didn't have a choice to be a sinner or not. That's the way she was born. And when we're born sinners, does a sinful heart have symptoms? And the symptoms of the sinful heart are? Sins. And we have got this whole thing upside down and backwards, thinking that the plan of salvation is to deal with the symptoms. The plan of salvation is to get, get the, the penalty paid for the bad deeds we've done. The plan of salvation is to get the record books erased from the deeds we've done. The, the plan of salvation is to get forgiveness and pardon for the deeds we've done. That's all wrong. Those are symptoms of the sick heart. The plan of salvation is to cure the heart. Amen. Amen. That's what the plan of salvation is about. And Satan has this twisted idea that we focus on symptoms, we never get our heart cleansed. Imagine being in the hospital sick. And you try to get the nurses to erase the medical records so the doctor won't know how sick you are when he comes around the next morning. We're busy working to get Jesus in heaven to erase our record books. What did David pray, though? Or how about this? You're really, really sick. I mean, you've been nauseated. You're cramping. You're just fevers. You can't hardly see You go to the doctor. Does he come in to examine you? You quickly shove your perfectly healthy brother in front of you and ask the doctor to examine him instead. What do we say? That when the father looks at us, he didn't see us. He examines his son in our place. Why do we say that? Because we think if the Father sees us sick, he'll kill us. But David said, Search me me and see the wicked way in me. Then create in me a clean heart, O God. Shouldn't we be saying to God, God, find the defects, find all the faults, and then fix them. Transform me, regenerate me, heal me, cleanse me. This is the gospel message. Christ came to be our remedy. And then when we have won back the trust, we open the heart. He he puts this into our hearts. And so the the woman caught in adultery, Christ doesn't condemn her. He sees her as someone who needs healing. Transformation. And what he gave her, if you want to use the theological terms, imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is often done in a legal way that God legally accounts to our record book in heaven that we are counted uh, righteous even though we're not because we've accepted the blood of Jesus. No. Imputed righteousness is relational. Look at how God treated Adam in the garden. He saw him with righteousness. He treated him with righteousness. Look at how he treated the woman. He imputed to her grace. He treated her in the way he saw how she would be, just like a doctor... With a sick patient, he doesn't treat them with disdain. He sees that patient as they will be once they're well. And he intervenes to bring healing to get them well. Right. And, there, and by the way, this doesn't undo the law for the law lovers. It puts the law where it belongs because we're talking now the natural law upon which life is designed to operate. And that law is uncompromising. You can't compromise with the law of respiration. You can't say, well, you know what? It's pretty unfair that God says if I tie a plastic bag over my head, I can't live. You know, that's pretty unfair. I should get a legal pass on that one because Jesus died in my place. No. There's no compromise. You have to be healthy in order to live. We have to be in harmony with the principles of life. And so Christ becomes the source of salvation for all who obey him. We get a new heart and a right spirit. We live a different life. Okay, some more examples of the Old Testament. I particularly like this statement. Well, well, there's so many I want to share. Uh, giving the manna and the, and then the giving the quail. Christ gave the manna, or God gave the manna to feed them, but they weren't happy with it, so, and they griped and they, and they belly ached, and so what did God do? What did giving quail do? What did it show?
1: <laughs>
0: if they got sick, many of them died, but, but what did he show from God? He's willing to, He's willing to, to meet them where they are. Yes, that's so all I'll hand back over here. Yes. Uh, I
4: was going to suggest 2 Chronicles 33 about Manasseh and oh, 13.
0: I love that story. Uh,
4: grace, especially verses 12 and 13.
0: Let's talk, let's talk about Manasseh for a minute. Do you know Manasseh is the king that reigned over Israel longer than any other king? And I'm going to let you read those verses in just a second, okay? All right, Manasseh is the king that reigned over Israel longer than any other king. 55 years. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the king who was going to die, but he prayed to God and got 15 extra years of life. During that 15 extra years of life, he gives he has a child, Manasseh. The prophet in the, in the court where Manasseh grew up was the prophet Isaiah, the gospel prophet who wrote the book of Isaiah, and he was there to counsel Manasseh through his adult life. Manasseh becomes a a horrible reprobate. He, he goes into all types of idolatry. He ends up leading the children of Israel. He brings in the, the signs of the zodiac the, and puts in the, in, the, in the actual temple in Jerusalem. He, he offers, uh, he brings in the god Molech and puts in the temple. And, and god Molech was this, this uh, metal god that you would be, would be hollow in the inside, made out of iron, and they would fill a fire in it and, until it got so hot that it would turn the metal red. And he took one of his own sons and, and threw on that and offered his son uh, to, to Molech. Um, this is this is what the, the king, uh, Manasseh, does. So awful that uh, God allows him to be taken captive by the, by the Assyrians, put fishhooks in his skin, drug away into prison, and there he repents in sackcloth and ashes. And, and read for us the, the text here.
4: In, I'm going to just read 12 and 13. Okay. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea, so he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew what the Lord, that the Lord is God.
0: And, and, and Manasseh spent the rest of his life tearing down the idols that he'd put up, going around trying to reform the nation, leading the people back into the healthy worship of the true God. By the way, Manasseh also, uh, history uh, and, and uh, um, would suggest, had Isaiah put in a log and saw it in half. Mm-hmm. So he was a before his, repentance. before his repentance. Yes, before his repentance. Yes, yeah. Um, but but the point being is, do you notice it's not about the deeds done; it's about whether we've come to that heart change or not. Because we are all born to Manasseh is every one of us, save the grace of Christ. That's every one of us. We are born in a condition that, unless remedied, will lead us all to live just like that.
2: What about Jonah?
0: And Jonah and Nineveh. What do, you, what do you all think about Jonah and Nineveh?
2: Shows God.
0: Shows character. How does it show God's character? Forcing this guy against his will to go over and, <laughs> and uh, preach a message he didn't want to preach? It chose him because he knew he would. Exactly. See, what did he need? He needed somebody that the Ninevites would listen to. I like to think that
4: was changed.
0: Who did the Ninevites worship?
4: The
0: fish god. Dagon. Dagon, the fish god. So Jonah heads off into the sea. Eventually gets tossed into the sea, gets swallowed by a fish. They're out there, some Ninevites are out there on the, on the shore, fishing one day. Here comes this giant fish and coughs up Jonah. Don't
1: pay attention.
0: You think they're going to listen? They worship the fish god. Here's a messenger from our God. Repent. They repented. And maybe he was all bleached white because of three days in the belly of a whale and his acid had worked on its skin. He might have had a little piece of seaweed hanging right there. (laughs) God was
2: even gentle with Jonah after that because Jonah was mad.
0: Jonah was mad. He was a bigot. He was a racist.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Hosea, another great story. So many, so many stories we see the grace of God in the Old Testament. How about some actual texts from the Old Testament, if I can? Here's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We think that's a New Testament. That's Deuteronomy. Or, uh, Deuteronomy 36. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. What's the message here? It's a heart transformation message in the Old Testament. We often think that's New Testament stuff. Yes?
4: I don't think there's any, any verses specific to Genesis 15 6. Abraham believed in the Lord. It was counted him as righteousness.
0: He believed. He trusted him. He, was tr- he trusted the Lord. And, and when he trusts the Lord, then we open the heart to him. And when we open the heart to him, it says in Romans 5.5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. We become partakers of the divine nature, it says in Peter. And the nature of God is? Love. In those two antagonistic principles, the law of the universe, love is restored in. We're accounted righteousness because when we trust him, love is coming in, and the regenerating healing process is the inevitable outcome. He sees what will come of it. Uh, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time. Says the Lord, I will put my law on their minds and write that on their hearts. The same thing we see in Hebrews, Old Testament. But this was the one I think I love the best. Ezekiel 36, 22-27. This one's awesome. It says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Think about this, Christian folk. It is not for you, O Christian people, that I am going to do this. Because you have profaned my name among the nations you have gone, I will show my holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What's the message here? Legal pardon? Transformation. Healing. Transformation. This isn't talking about the genetic descendants here. This is talking about that last day group of people ready to walk into heaven who is going to have the heart of stone removed, who's going to have that me first, survival of the fittest principle eradicated, who's going to have that law of love, that other-centered giving written in, who's going to love others more than themselves, that text we read in Revelation.
3: Yes? It's a little bit difficult to remove the whole idea of judgment from the gospel. As in uh, John 5, um, verse 22, it says, For the Father judges no man but hath committed all judgment to the
0: Son. And what does the Son say about his role in judgment? Yeah. That he, doesn't judge. he said, I will not judge you. But if I do. The words that I have spoken okay. will be your judge, which means the truth itself, your very condition. There will be a judge. There's no question about it. But when you have a terminal condition, and that terminal condition, let's let's, let's think this true, we all have a terminal condition, Let's, let's say we're all HIV infected, if there's a remedy that's free and will heal us, and some of us pretend to take it, but we really don't take it, and some of us actually take it, do we have to go before a legal judge for that to be determined? No, there'll be a judge. Our very condition. Will be our judge. And that's what he's saying. The words that I speak. And he says, By your words you will be justified. By your words you'll be condemned. From the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. By the condition of your heart you'll be determined. That's your judge. Yes? Um, here in Romans 13, verse 10, it
3: But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou say not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of
0: Christ. Yeah, there's going to be a judgment seat. But what is that judgment seat?
3: There is judgment, but it is through a judge that
0: has already walked our lives., Yeah, see, that is one metaphor. There's one metaphor. That we, we, we really want to believe that we have to have somebody outside of us make a determination about our condition. But that's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is we are either transformed and made Christ-like or we're not. And that condition will be self-evident when we stand face-to-face in Christ's presence. There's evidence for this already throughout Scripture.
3: So why would you use this these metaphors about judgment if there was I mean, you read about um, the terrors separated from the wheat and stuff like that and also when he prunes the different you know, the tree and stuff. There's a lot of metaphors going this way and you're trying to just push all of those aside.
0: There are a lot of metaphors there. Why does a parent say to a child, if you don't brush your teeth, you're gonna get spanked? Discipline. Is the reason for brushing the teeth to avoid a spanking? Is that the ultimate reason?
2: It's an emergency measure.
0: Why does the parent say it then? Why doesn't the parent say to a three-year-old, if you don't brush your teeth, they're going to decay and leave it at that?
2: And that's what he understands.
0: See, God, used, God speaks a language that people can understand. In the Jewish day, at the time that that was written, what was the mindset of the Jewish people at that time? Were they legalistic? Were they forensic? Did, and in fact, in Romans, he actually says, I'm going to write to a people who like the law. And then when he uses a legal metaphor, he uses the one of the marriage contract. Because why? Because you're so law obsessed. So he's speaking a language, trying to reach them where they are, to bring them out of the darkness into the light. Oh, yes, she you has your hand up. Yes.
2: When he cured the lepers, he sent them to the priest in order to be allowed back into Jewish society. And it's kind of like a metaphor for sin in our hearts. When we're cured of sin. It'll be self-evident that we are cured when we come to the judge. In other words, our condition is self-evident. We either have been uh, healed by Jesus or we haven't been healed by
0: Jesus. Let's hand back over here. Yes.
1: Go back to Ezekiel 36, the one that you read there. Uh, we don't understand, I don't think, really what Ezekiel's trying to say there, what God's trying to say through Ezekiel. And without really understanding what is taking place, we have this problem of trying to understand: is he, is he gonna judge us or is he not? He's only gonna judge those that are not doing what Ezekiel 36 says. Then it says, I'm gonna remove it. Well, we first have giving permission in Philippians 2:13, uh, where Paul says, It is God that works are both in you to will and to do. I've just discovered recently where it says. That God is going to work in is the same word in the Greek that is to do. It's the same word. So God is going to work, and He's going to do the work, as Ezekiel says here in 36. God is going to change that heart, and from the change comes the natural outdoing, the natural working of the heart.
0: And what happens? What happens to those in the end? those who refuse the working of the Holy Spirit, those who reject God, those who close the heart to Him, those who absolutely say no and are going to be lost in the end, what happens to them in the end? What does God do to them? Does God have to inflict an external penalty upon them? Or is there an actual consequence to that? You see, some believe that God has to sit in judgment and that the, there's going to be a, a saint committee during the thousand years that's going to meet and committee to determine how long each person needs to suffer in the flames uh, to be appropriate for the wickedness that they've uh, accumulated on the earth. Does that sound right to you? <laughs> but The fire does come down from heaven. Yes, the fire comes down from heaven. What kind of fire is this? I guess we'll probably have to close on this one. <laughs> The the fire. Isaiah 33, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? Next verse, 15. He who walks righteously and keeps his hand away from murder, bribe, and extortion is the one who lives in the fire, not the wicked. What? Start Start in Genesis and go on through. When Moses talked to God at the bush, what was the bush doing? (laughs) <laughs> was it consumed? No. When, when God came to Sinai, how's the the, the mountain described? On fire. On fire did it melt down. <laughs> when the temple was dedicated, the priest could not enter because? Our. The brightness of God's glory is too great. They couldn't enter the place. Did the building burn down? No. no. It says in Ezekiel chapter 28 that Lucifer used to walk among the fiery stones of God's presence. In Hebrews 12, 29, it says that our God is? and consuming fire. In Revelation 22, it says there will be no need for the sun to light it because God's presence will be its light. And see, the lie that Satan has perpetrated upon us is the place you don't want to go, and the place you don't want to be is a place of eternal burning and consuming fire, and that place is God's very presence. The wicked, the wicked are, are consumed by it. It says, and this is very interesting, Thessalonians says that the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Well, when Moses came down off the mountain, he's radiating this glory. Did Moses have third-degree burns? Did his whiskers even get burned off? What did the children of Israel do when they saw his face? They couldn't handle it. It was causing them pain. It was causing them agony. He had to veil his face. It would have it it destroyed them if they had gotten too close. We have further evidence for this. Nadab and Abihu took illegal fire into the holy into the temple. What happened to them? It says in Leviticus that fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. Next verse, Moses tells the cousins to go in and drag them out still in their tunics. Wait a minute, if I take a flamethrower and torch you until you die, will, will you still be in your clothes by the time that's done? no no, they won 't be able to pull you out by your clothes. No, this fire of, of God is something strange because it doesn 't burn up bushes, it doesn 't burn up faces of Moses or burn down temples, but it destroys the wicked by the brightness of his coming. Nadab and Abihu got a taste of that, but they, their clothes weren 't burned off now, this is a very strange fire will be warm because. Because the, the, the words are to sin wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. Well, this this is my my Bible's made out of like paper and leather, this this bench is made out of wood. What's what's sin made out of? I mean this fire is coming to burn up sin. It's not coming to burn up material substance. What is sin made out of? It's ideas, concepts, and at its root it has two things. The two root elements to sin are lies. Father of lies, Satan. And what is it that actually, when it comes in, will destroy a lie? Truth. truth. truth in the, and the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. And then the other is selfishness, is the other root. Lies and selfishness. What is it that, if it comes into your heart, will free you from selfishness? Love. love. And God is? Love. And so when the Spirit fell, it's a spirit of truth and love, and they saw tongues of fire. Did anyone get burned? And so when God comes, and it says in um, Daniel chapter 7, well, first it says in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, that love is a mighty fire that can't be quenched. Rivers can't put it out. That's what love is. And then in, in Daniel 7, we see the Ancient of Days with his white hair and his white robes taking his seat. And it says, rivers of fire came out before him and 10,000 times ten thousand and thousands thousands of thousands stood in it. Is this fire causing anybody any harm up there? No, this fire only causes harm to those who are bent in selfishness. Why? Paul says, "If somebody does you wickedly, treat them with kindness, and you will keep coals of fire on their head. When we and think this through in your own lives, when you've done somebody wrong and they've really continued to love you, do you like to be in their presence before you repent? It's hard. You can't be in their presence. You avoid them. It brings conviction. It brings a burning. And this is the fire of God's presence. And he's veiled himself since sin because we couldn't stand to be in his presence. And he's working to heal a people. The son of righteousness, Malachi chapter 4, is rising, S-U-N, S-U-N, son of righteous, rising with healing in his rays. And this is the light of truth, the light of love, at the last time rising. And those of us who are taking it in, being transformed, being renewed, will be ready to meet him face to face. For it says in John, we will be like him. But those who run from it, those who stay in the darkness of sin's, uh, sin's darkness, who, who suppress it from their minds when they come into the presence, will run and hide, begging for the mountains to follow them and hide them from the face, just like the children of Israel wanted to hide from Moses' face. The good news is the good news about God, that he's not like Satan has alleged he is, that he's exactly like Jesus has sent him, has, has revealed him to be. And through Jesus Christ, we have a a remedy that can free our hearts from fear and selfishness, and we can go out and be that shining light in this last day. Mm -hmm. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to take all that Jesus has achieved in our behalf and reproduce it in us. Let us experience that new covenant experience where you will write your law of love on our hearts and minds. Free us from fear, free us from insecurity, free us from self-centeredness, and help us to go out and reveal this truth about you, the fire of your love, we pray in your holy name. Amen.
4: Thank yeah. you.